0: section four of mark twain a biography part one 1900 to 1907 this LibriVox recording is in the public domain mark twain a biography by albert bigelow Payne, chapter 215 summer at the lair in june clemens took the family to saranac lake to ampersand they occupied a log cabin which he called the lair on the south shore near the water's edge A remote and beautiful place where as had happened before they were so comfortable and satisfied that they hoped to return another summer there was swimming and boating and long walks in the woods the worry and noise of the world were far away they gave little enough attention to the mails they took only a weekly paper and were likely to allow it to lie in the post office uncalled for clemens especially loved the place and wrote to twichell I am on the front porch, lower one main deck, of our little bijou of a dwelling house. The lake edge, lower Saranac, is so nearly under me that I can't see the shore, but only the water, small poxed with rain splashes, for there is a heavy downpour. It is charmingly like sitting snuggled up on a ship's deck with a stretching sea all around, but very much more satisfactory, for at sea a rainstorm is depressing, while here, of course, the effect engendered is just a deep sense of comfort and contentment. The heavy forest shuts us solidly in on three sides. There are no neighbors. There are beautiful little tan-colored, impudent squirrels about. They take tea, 5 p.m., not invited, at the table in the woods where Jean does my typewriting, and one of them has been brave enough to sit upon Jean's knee, with his tail curved over his back, and munch his food. They come to dinner, 7 p.m., on the front porch, not invited, but Clara drives them away. It is an occupation which requires some industry and attention to business. They all have the one name, Blennerhassett, from Burr's friend, and none of them answers to it, except when hungry. Clement could work at the lair, often writing in shady seclusions along the shore, and he finished there the two-part serial, published in Harper's Magazine for January and February 1902, the double-barreled detective story, intended originally as a burlesque on Sherlock Holmes. It did not altogether fulfill its purpose, and is hardly to be ranked as one of Mark Twain's successes. It contains, however, one paragraph at least, by which it is likely to be remembered, a hoax, his last one, on the reader. It runs as follows. It was a crisp and spicy morning in early October. The lilacs and laburnums, lit with the glory fires of autumn, hung burning and flashing in the upper air, a fairy bridge provided by kind nature for the wingless wild things that have their home in the treetops, and would visit together. The larch and the pomegranate flung their purple and yellow flames in brilliant broad splashes along the slanting sweep of woodland. The sensuous fragrance of innumerable deciduous flowers rose upon the swooning atmosphere. Far in the empty sky a solitary esophagus slept upon motionless wing. Everywhere brooded stillness serenity, and the peace of God. The warm light and luxury of this paragraph are factitious. The careful reader will note that its various accessories are ridiculously associated, and only the most careless reader will accept the esophagus as a bird. But it disturbed a great many admirers, and numerous letters of inquiry came wanting to know what it was all about, Some suspected the joke and taunted him with it. One such correspondent wrote, My dear Mark Twain, reading your double-barreled detective story in the January Harpers late one night, I came to the paragraph where you so beautifully describe a crisp and spicy morning in early October. I read along the paragraph, conscious only of its woozy sound, until I brought up with a start against your esophagus in the empty sky. Then I read the paragraph again, Oh, Mark Twain, Mark Twain, how could you do it? Put a trap like that into the midst of a tragical story. Do serenity and peace brood over you after you have done such a thing? Who lit the lilacs, and which end up do they hang? When did larches begin to flame? And who set out the pomegranates in that canyon? what are deciduous flowers and do they always bloom in the fall trellin i have been making myself obnoxious to various people by demanding their opinion of that paragraph without telling them the name of the author they say very well done the alliteration is so pretty what's an esophagus a bird what's it all mean anyway i tell them it means mark twain and that an esophagus is a kind of swallow, am I right? Or is it a gull or a gullet? Hereafter if you must write such things won't you please be so kind as to label them? Very sincerely yours, Alita F. Dean." Mark Twain to Miss Dean. Don't you give that esophagus away again, or I'll never trust you with another privacy so many wrote that clemens finally felt called upon to make public confession and as one searching letter had been mailed from springfield massachusetts he made his reply through the republican of that city after some opening comment he said i published a short story lately and it was in that that i put the esophagus i will say privately that I expected it to bother some people, in fact that was the intention, but the harvest has been larger than I was calculating upon. The esophagus has gathered in the guilty and the innocent alike, whereas I was only fishing for the innocent, the innocent and confiding. He quoted a letter from a schoolmaster in the Philippines who thought the passage beautiful, with the exception of the curious creature which slept upon motionless wings. Said Clemens, Do you notice? Nothing in the paragraph disturbed him but that one word. It shows that that paragraph was most ably constructed for the deception it was intended to put upon the reader. It was my intention that it should read plausibly, and it is now plain that it does. It was my intention that it should be emotional and touching, and you see yourself that it fetched this public instructor. Alas, if I had but left that one treacherous word out, I should have scored, scored everywhere, and the paragraph would have slidden through every reader's sensibilities like oil and left not a suspicion behind. The other sample inquiry is from a professor in a New England university. It contains one naughty word, which I cannot bear to suppress, but he is not in the theological department, so it is no harm. Dear Mr. Clemens, Far in the empty sky a solitary esophagus slept upon motionless wing. It is not often I get a chance to read much periodical literature, but I have just gone through at this belated period, with much gratification and edification, your double-barreled detector story. But what in hell is an esophagus? I keep one myself, but it never sleeps in the air or anywhere else. My profession is to deal with words, and esophagus interested me the moment I lighted upon it. But, as a companion of my youth used to say, I'll be eternally co-eternally cussed. If I can make it out, is it a joke, or am I an ignoramus? Between you and me, I was almost ashamed of having fooled that man— but for pride's sake i was not going to say so i wrote and told him it was a joke and that is what i am now saying to my springfield inquirer and i told him to carefully read the whole paragraph and he would find not a vestige of sense in any detail of it this also i recommend to my Springfield inquirer. I have confessed. I am sorry, partially. I will not do so any more for the present. Don't ask me any more questions. Let the esophagus have a rest on his same old motionless wing. He wrote Twitchell that the story had been a six-day tour de force, 25,000 words, and he adds, how long it takes a literary seed to sprout sometimes. This seed was planted in your house many years ago, when you sent me to bed with a book not heard of by me, until then, Sherlock Holmes. I've done a grist of writing here this summer, but not for publication soon, if ever. I did write two satisfactory articles for early print, but I've burned one of them and have buried the other in my large box of posthumous stuff. I've got stacks of literary remains piled up there. Early in August, Clemens went with H. H. Roberts in his yacht, Kanawa on a cruise to new brunswick and nova scotia rogers had made up a party including ex-speaker reed dr rice and colonel a g payne young harry rogers also made one of the party clemens kept a log of the cruise certain entries of which convey something of its spirit on the eleventh at yarmouth he wrote fog bound the garrison went ashore officers visited the yacht in the evening and said an anvil had been missed. Mr. Rogers paid for the anvil. August 13th. There is a fine picture gallery here. The sheriff photographed the garrison, with the exception of Harry Rogers and Mr. Clemens. August 14th. Upon complaint of Mr. Reed, another dog was procured. He said he had been a sailor all his life and considered it dangerous to trust a ship to a dog watch with only one dog in it. Poker for a change. August 15th, to Rockland, Maine, in the afternoon, arriving about 6 p.m. In the night, Dr. Rice baited the anchor with his winnings and caught a whale 90 feet long. He said so himself. It is thought that if there had been another witness like Dr. Rice, the whale would have been longer. August 16th. We could have had a happy time in Bath, but for the interruptions caused by people who wanted Mr. Reed to explain votes of the olden time, or give back the money. Mr. Rogers recouped them. Another anvil missed. The descendant of Captain Kidd is the only person who does not blush for these incidents. Harry and Mr. Clemens blush continually. It is believed that If the rest of the garrison were like these two, the yacht would be welcome everywhere instead of being quarantined by the police in all the ports. Mr. Clemens and Harry have attracted a great deal of attention, and men have expressed a resolve to turn over a new leaf." and copy after them from this out evening judge cohen came over from another yacht to pay his respects to harry and mr clemens he having heard of their reputation from the clergy of these coasts he was invited by the gang to play poker apparently as a courtesy and in a Spirit of seeming hospitality, he not knowing them and taking it all at par, Mr. Rogers lent him clothes to go home in. August 17th, the reform statesman growling and complaining again, not in a frank, straightforward way, but talking at the Commodore while letting on to be talking to himself. This time he was dissatisfied about the anchor watch, said it was out of date, untrustworthy, and for real efficiency didn't begin with the Waterbury, and was going on to reiterate, as usual, that he had been a pilot all his life, and blamed if he ever saw, etc., 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 but he was not allowed to finish. We put him ashore at Portland. That is to say, Reed landed at Portland, the rest of the party returning with the yacht. We had a noble good time in the yacht, Clemens wrote Twitchell on their return. We caught a Chinese missionary and drowned him. Twitchell had been invited to make one of the party and this letter was to make him feel sorry he had not accepted end of chapter 215 summer at the lair read by john greenman